Well, thank you, everybody. We have a big hello that we need to say to all of our friends out at our Loudoun campus and at our Prince William campus. Yes, that's right. They're having a 7.30 service as well. And to our friends around the world on the Internet campus. So instead of saying good morning, which is what we usually say, we are going to say he is risen because this is Easter, right? So all of you guys out there at Loudoun and Prince William and around the world on the Internet and all of us here, when I say three, we're all going to say he is risen. Here we go. One, two, three. He is risen. And indeed, he is. You know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no matter how you slice it, all of the Christian faith rises and falls based on the truthfulness of the resurrection. This is why the resurrection forms the foundation of every sermon preached in the New Testament. And this is why at the end of his sermon in Athens to the philosophers on Mars Hill, where Paul called them to repentance and to faith in Christ, he said to them, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he said, God has given proof of this, that is, of everything I'm telling you, by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. And this is why Newsweek magazine said, and I quote, it wasn't the morality of the Sermon on the Mount which enabled Christianity to conquer Roman paganism, but the belief that Jesus had been literally raised from the dead. By any measure, the resurrection of Jesus is the most radical of all Christian doctrines, end of quote, and Newsweek is absolutely correct. And so this Easter weekend, we want to talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and about the plan of salvation, plan B, I call it, that Jesus' resurrection makes available to you and to me and to all the human race. So today we really have two questions that we need to answer. Question number one is, did Jesus really rise from the dead the way the Bible says he did? And question number two is, if he did, then how does God's plan of salvation, which is anchored by the resurrection, how does it work? So that's our plan. Are we ready? All right, here we go. Question number one. Did Jesus really rise from the dead the way the Bible says he did? You know, the very first Easter began with an angel saying these words, Matthew chapter 28. He said, fear not, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Now, why did this angel go to the trouble to put this last little phrase in? He has risen just as he said. Well, it was because while he was here on earth, Jesus was constantly telling people that he was going to rise from the dead. He told this to his enemies. Matthew chapter 12, he said, For as Jonah three days and three nights was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said this to his friends. 
Matthew 16. The Bible says from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised again on the third day. In fact, Jesus talked so much about the fact that he was going to rise from the dead that this became a matter of public record throughout all Israel. I mean, to, to be in Israel 2,000 years ago when Jesus was alive and say, what resurrection of Jesus? Would be like living in America in the 60s and saying, what Vietnam War? Or living in America in the 70s and saying, what Watergate break-in? Or living in America today and saying, what 9-11? But, but, but that doesn't really answer the question, does it? Because the question is not whether Jesus talked about it. The question is whether Jesus did it. And I believe with all my heart that he most certainly did. And I've got four pieces of compelling evidence to offer to you on this subject. So here we go. Piece of compelling evidence number one is the compelling evidence of the Roman soldiers. Matthew 27, verse 63, the Jewish leaders said to Pilate, they said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So, please command that his tomb be made secure till the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal his body and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And then this last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, Take a squad of Roman soldiers and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, putting a seal on the stone. You know, they'd roll this stone in front of the tomb. They put a wax seal on it, and they posted the guard. Now, a Roman security detail like this would have consisted of 15 enlisted men and one officer. And these Roman soldiers had a vested interest in seeing to it that nobody stole Jesus' body. Because if a Roman soldier lost his prisoner, even his dead prisoner, he lost his life. And the Romans took this very seriously. Maybe you remember in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul was in jail in Philippi, in Greece, and well, one night this angel appeared and blew the doors of the jail wide open. And here's what the Bible says, Acts 16, 27. The jailer, who was a Roman soldier, woke up and seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Why was this Roman soldier going to kill himself? Well, friends, he assumed, what did the Bible say, that all the prisoners had run away, so he knew that his superiors were going to kill him, so he figured he'd save them the trouble and just do it himself. And the only thing that kept him from killing himself was the Apostle Paul calling out and saying, whoa, 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 don't do that. We're all still here. No prisoners gone anywhere. My point again is that the Roman soldiers took this idea of losing your prisoner very seriously. Now, in light of that, do you really think 
that a bunch of unarmed women and fishermen could have gotten past these battle-hardened Roman soldiers whose lives literally were on the line and that they could have stolen the body of Jesus? Folks, preposterous. Uh, impossible. It could never happen. Compelling evidence number two that I have for us is the compelling evidence of Jesus' enemies. When the message that Jesus had risen from the dead began spreading through Jerusalem, Jesus' enemies decided to do everything they could to discredit the message of the resurrection. They were determined to do this. The Bible says, Matthew 28, Then the rabbis gave the soldiers a great sum of money and said to them, Tell the people that his disciples came at night and stole his body away while you were sleeping. And if it gets back to Pilate, we will appease him and keep you out of trouble. So I ask myself, why did these Jewish leaders have to spend all this money? And why did they have to go to all this political trouble to try and discredit the resurrection of Jesus when all they really had to do was take Jesus' dead body out of the tomb and put it on public display for everybody to see, and it was over. It was settled. End of story. Benito. Why didn't they just do that? Well, the answer is very simple, my friends. There was no dead body to produce and to put on display. The tomb was empty. Praise the Lord. Huh? Yeah, the tomb was empty. And we already agreed. Didn't we just agree? That there was no way any human being was able to get rid of that body because they couldn't have gotten by the Roman soldiers. So if no human being stole the body of Jesus and it wasn't there, where did it go? What explanation could there be other than the one the Bible gives that he rose from the dead? Compelling evidence number three is the evidence of the eyewitnesses. You know, when you go to law school, people take a course that's simply entitled Evidence. And one of the classic books on the laws of evidence is the book called Phipson on Evidence. The publisher of this book said, and I quote, this is the leading work on civil and criminal evidence which considers the complex mix of rules, principles, and practices to a depth that is the envy of its competitors. In other words, it's good. It's a good book, right? Okay. Now, on the section on eyewitness testimony, here's what the book says. As a general rule, courts may act on the testimony of a single witness. And where that testimony is unimpeached, they should act on it. However, corroboration by other witnesses is always desirable because it turns a probability into a certainty. End of quote. Well, friends, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we have this kind of eyewitness corroboration from not just a couple of people, but from literally hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ. Listen, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you the message I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, 
and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now watch. And that he was, what's the next word? Seen by Peter. Then by the twelve. After that, he was what? Seen by over 500 brethren at once, most of whom are still alive to this day. After that, he was what? Seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was what? Seen by me. And all of these eyewitnesses were not timid about telling people what they had seen. In Acts chapter 2, Peter and all the apostles were preaching to thousands in the temple, and they said, This Jesus God raised back to life, a fact to which we are all witnesses. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were preaching in the temple, and they said, You killed the Prince of Life, but God raised him from the dead, a fact to which we are eyewitnesses. And in Acts chapter 5, the rabbis said to the disciples, the apostles, we gave you strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name, yet you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching. And look what the apostles said. They said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, and we are, what's the word? Witnesses of these things. My point, friends, is that according to every rule of jurisprudence, this kind of overwhelming eyewitness testimony, as Phipson says in his book, turns the probability of Jesus' resurrection into a certainty. You say, Bob, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if they were all liars? I mean, what if every one of them was in on the scam and there was a con game going on and they all agreed they were going to say this and it was all just a scam from the beginning, Lon? Isn't that possible? Well, the answer is no. You say it's not possible. No. Well, why not? Well, because of compelling evidence number four and that is the compelling evidence of the eyewitnesses martyrdom. I trust you know that virtually every eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, whose name we find mentioned in the Bible, every one of them virtually died as a martyr instead of recanting their testimony about the risen Christ. The apostle James, he was killed by Herod, Acts chapter 12. Stephen was stoned to death, Acts chapter 7. Thomas was martyred in India, Mark was martyred in Egypt. Philip was martyred in Turkey. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. The Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome by Emperor Nero, who also took the Apostle Peter in Rome and crucified him upside down. Now, people don't do this for a scam. You know, I was watching a program on TV several weeks ago about the Enron debacle. And I didn't really know all that much about Enron and how this whole thing happened, so I learned a lot. And what I learned is that the major architect of the fraud that brought Enron down was their CFO, a fellow named Andrew Fasto. He lied, he connived, 
he deceived, he, he, he plotted, he schemed. He's the one who set up all the shell companies that ran this fraud. But when things went south and he was suddenly faced with 78 counts of fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy, Fasto was the very first one to cop a plea and turn on everybody else in the scheme and testify against them. Now this is human nature. At its best, at its worst, you pick, I don't know. But this is human nature. As long as the con's working, hey, we're all in. As when the con goes south, it's every man for himself and every man protect himself. But folks, Peter didn't do this. James didn't do this. Paul didn't do this. Matthew didn't do this, nor Thomas, nor Philip. Why? Well, it's very simple. These people weren't running a con. These people had really seen the risen Christ with their very own eyes, and they refused to recant something that they knew to be true, even if it cost them their lives. So let's summarize. The risen Christ, we said, is the foundation of the Christian faith and the evidence confirming that there is a risen Christ is compelling indeed. Number one, we have the evidence of the Roman soldiers, which makes human tampering with the body of Jesus impossible. Number two, we have the evidence of Jesus' enemies who could have stopped Christianity dead in its tracks by simply producing Jesus' dead body, but they didn't produce it because they couldn't produce it. Third, we have the evidence of the eyewitnesses, hundreds of whom saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. And finally, we have the evidence of their martyrdom, the fact that these same men and women die rather than recant their testimony about the resurrection. Now, can I prove to you in a test tube that the resurrection of Jesus is true? No, I can't. But can I give you such a preponderance of evidence that even Judge Judy would be convinced? The answer is, yes, I can. And the answer is, I just did. And this is why Peter said 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we have not followed cleverly devised myths. This is not a myth that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is true, Peter says, and I'll die rather than say it's not true. And Peter did. Now all of that brings us, of course, to our second question. And our second question and final question for today is, if the resurrection is indeed true, then how does God's plan of salvation, which is anchored in the resurrection, how does it work? Well, you know, everybody in our world has a plan for getting into heaven. Did you ever think about that? It's just for most people, that plan is based on their own human works. Being a nice person, keeping the Ten Commandments, being good to others, uh, going through all kinds of religious 
activities, sacraments, saying the rosary, coming to church, put money in the offering plate, whatever. I call this plan A. The problem is that the Bible tells us that God utterly rejects plan A. Listen, Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one, let's say that again, no one, that means not you and not me, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law, that is by human effort. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, not as the result of human works. And Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, God saved us. The point is that the Bible declares that human works is an utterly deficient plan, an utterly defunct plan for getting into heaven. It won't work, it never has worked, and it never will work. No matter how hard a person tries, no matter how sincere a person may be, the answer is always no to this plan. You know, when I was in college, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, any Tar Heels here? <laughs> all right, maybe I won't try that next service. Uh, anyway, all right, I was, and, uh, <laughs> and, and when I was a senior, um, I came, you know, I, I came to Christ so late in my career there that I couldn't change my major. So I was a chemistry major, and when I was a senior, my grades were good enough that I got into honors chemistry. Now the way honors chemistry works is, you work with a professor, you show up the first day, he assigns you a project, you work along with a graduate student, you know, you tootle around and do whatever they need you to do, and at the end of the semester you get an A. That's honors chemistry. All right. Well I showed up the first day, got my lab coat, got my locker, got my little plastic gos uh, goggles that you got to wear, and I never showed up again. Ne never. You say, what were you doing? I don't know. I had other things to do. I don't know. So I just never showed up. Then the end of the semester came, and it was time for grades. So I showed up that day. And I went to see the professor, and I said, hey, hi, hello, you know, whatever. And, he, and I said, what grade are you going to give me? And he said, I'm going to give you an F. I said, no, 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 you can't do that. He said, which you would never hear. <clears throat> I said, well, I know that, I know that, and <clears throat> that's a little bit of a problem. I said, but, <clears throat> I said, but sir, if you give me an F, I won't graduate. If you give me an F, I'm going to have to stay a whole nother year here uh, and do, you know, in order to get my degree. And he said, you know, you were never here. I'm giving you an F. I said, sir, listen, please, 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 don't do that. Can I do some remedial work? Uh, uh, can I write a paper? Uh, can I read a book? Can I do something? And he said, no. And I said, well, look, sir. I said, everybody gets an A in honors chemistry. So why don't you and I just split the difference and give me a D? <laughs> and he said, no, you're getting an F. And this guy, I don't care what I tried, he was determined I was getting an F. And I got an F. And I had to stay another year in Chapel Hill and do a fifth year. We called it a victory lap. 
uh, in Chapel Hill. Yeah, that's right. My point is sometimes no means no. Like with this guy, that professor, when he said no, he meant no. Well, friends, when it comes to getting in heaven, into heaven by our own human works, God says no. And no means no. And since most of us, this is our plan A for getting in, this means that most of us are in big trouble. Maybe some of you here today are in big trouble. Ah, but I've got great news for you, my friends. The great news of the Bible is that God has provided plan B for getting into heaven. Listen, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the Bible says, God has provided a way for us to be righteous in his sight apart from the law. Look at this. Apart from human works and human effort, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes it is a gift from God given to us through the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. And how does a person access this redemption that's found in Christ? How does a person access this righteousness from God apart from the law? Well, verse 25 tells us we access it through faith in His, Jesus' blood. Folks, this is plan B for going to heaven. Trusting the blood of Jesus shed on the cross to pay for our sin in God's sight instead of trusting our own human good works. And you say, well, Lon, how do we know this plan works? I mean, how do we know that it's efficacious? How do we know that if we take plan B, that, you know, it's really safe to put our eternal destiny on this plan? Ah, friends, what did the Apostle Paul say to the philosophers in Athens? He said, Acts 17, 31, God has given us, what's the next word? Proof. He's given us proof by raising Jesus from the dead. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over to death on the cross for our sins, and watch now, he was raised to life for our justification. Justification, to be justified, means to be restored to a right relationship with God, to be acquitted of all charges before God, to be declared righteous in God's sight, to be saved, to be going to heaven. And when Romans 4.25 says, don't miss this, that Jesus was raised for our justification, it's telling us that Jesus' resurrection seals our justification, it corroborates our justification, it adjudicates our justification, and it guarantees our justification for all time and eternity. So how do we know that plan B works? How do we know that God's plan of salvation apart from human works, that it is efficacious? Friends, very simple. As long as Jesus remains risen from the dead, God's plan of salvation remains corroborated, sealed, and guaranteed and invincible for all of eternity. Praise the Lord. Huh? Amen? Amen.
And you know, the best part, and this is why we said that the plan B is anchored by the resurrection, you understand? The best part of the whole thing, though, is that the Bible says, Romans 3.22, that God's plan is for everyone who believes. Doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you've hurt, doesn't matter how many people you've let down, doesn't matter how ungodly or profane you may have lived, doesn't matter. No one who wants in on God's plan of salvation, no one is ever disqualified or left out. And that's good. That's good. Because at 22 years old, I had done all of this. I mean, I had done some really bad stuff, been some really bad places, hurt some people really badly, let some people down really badly. I, there was no more profane or ungodly human being on the face of the earth that I knew than me. I'd have won that I'd, hands down if there had been a vote. Who's the most profane person you know? But you know what? It didn't matter because I was still part of everyone. And as part of everyone, I still qualified for plan B. And you may be here and have done some terrible things, and, and maybe uh, you would say, oh, Lon, I'd be a, a close second for, or for you. Well, whether you would or you wouldn't doesn't matter, friends. You're still part of everyone, too, which means God's offer is still open to you, too. So let's conclude. What have we learned this Easter weekend? Well, we've learned that God's plan B for going to heaven is based on relying on the blood of Jesus instead of our own human works to justify us in God's sight and that this plan has been inaugurated and it has been authenticated and it has been adjudicated and it has been corroborated for all of time and eternity by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and finally, we've learned that it's open to everyone, everyone sitting here today, if you want in on plan B, you can get in on plan B. Right here, right now. You don't have to clean yourself up, dress yourself up, wash yourself up. You don't have to do anything. All you got to do is be willing to trade in plan A for plan B. And we're going to give you that chance right now. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you'd like to switch plans today and take God up on plan B, if you'd like to jettison your reliance on your own human effort and embrace the blood of Christ on the cross, shed to pay for your sins, then here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead us in a very short prayer, one phrase at a time, and I'd like you to follow along silently with me, one phrase at a time. And let's get it done. Here we go. You pray silently, I'll pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I come to you today because I understand that my plan for getting into heaven is deficient and won't work. And so today, I jettison that plan. 
And instead, I embrace plan B. Instead, I place my full reliance on the blood of Christ shed on the cross to pay for my sin. And I take comfort in the resurrection of Jesus, which authenticates to me that I'm not following a cleverly devised myth. So come into my heart today, forgive my sins, grant me eternal life as a gift, the way you said in Romans 3. I surrender my heart and life to you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. And Father, I want to pray for the folks that prayed that prayer that you might confirm in their hearts right now as they sit here that a great transaction has taken place, that they have moved from eternal death to eternal life, that they have moved from eternity in hell to eternity in heaven. And I pray, Father, for the rest of us here who've already done this, that you would confirm our faith and deepen our confidence in your plan of salvation. Lord, make us absolutely certain that we can trust our eternal destiny to you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As long as it stands firm, your plan of salvation stands firm. And it will always stand firm, the resurrection. And so God, encourage and lift our spirits this Easter weekend by the resurrection of the living Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, now sit still. I need 60 more seconds, all right? That's it. Listen to me. If you prayed that prayer with me today, what I want you to do as soon as we're done here is go right out in our lobby and sign up for Christianity 101. You saw it on the screen a minute ago. What we'll do is we've got a gift box to give you. The classes start next week. Uh, you, the classes are on, Sat on Sunday. They're on Monday. Or you can take them Thursday night with a live teacher online. So there's no excuse that you can't take Christianity 101. And what we're going to do in there is lock your faith down. Lock the decision that you made down so that you can defend it to yourself and to other people who are going to challenge what you did here today. And uh, so you go out there and sign up. Now, if you say, well, I don't really want to sign up for 101 and I didn't really pray with you, but I got questions. I just want to talk to somebody. Go on out in our lobby and go to the left. And we have friends with badges on that say, got questions? And they'll be happy to sit and talk with you as long as you want to talk about salvation and what it means for you. Finally, if you did not pray with me today, some of you know what I'm going to say, but you what? You thought about it. You know what we want you to do? We want you to go sign up for Christianity 101. And you know why? Because we'll answer all your questions and deal with all your objections to being a believer in Jesus. And by the end of six weeks, you might just be ready to 
switch plans and ask Christ into your life. Anyway, friends, listen to me carefully. If you're leaving here today and plan A, your own human works, is still how you're planning to get to heaven, as your friend, I'm telling you, you're on a dead-end street and the result is going to be disaster. You don't want to do this. So let us help you. We're going to dismiss you with the Hallelujah Chorus. You don't have to stay for it. You can go ahead and leave. If you want to stay, you're welcome. Either way, how about standing up? And have a wonderful Easter. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here at 7.30. Yeah.